And then next week we're going to finish chapter 15. And then we're going to go into our Psalms for the summer series. So we will do Psalms uh, wherever we left off last time. We'll start uh, second week in June, something like that, in Psalms. We'll do June, July, and August. And then after Labor Day, we'll get back and we'll finish up the Gospel of John with a big uh, teaching on the Holy Spirit in chapter 16. Uh, and everything in this chapter, these chapters that we're reading right now, take place the day before Jesus dies. So that's what you need to realize. And then once we get into chapter 18, we're dealing with his arrest and his death. So we are in John 14, and we're going to begin at verse 25. Okay? The scene is the Last Supper. This is Jesus' farewell meal with his apostles. And now the meal is over and Jesus is teaching. He's going to teach for about two or three hours. And what we have in these chapters here from 13 to 17 is a summary of that teaching. But I believe it probably lasted several hours. Okay? And uh, he teaches about his going away. And he talks about coming again, but sometimes he talks about coming again the second time and other times he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming. And As a result, the apostles several times during the teaching interrupt Jesus. And they ask him questions because they're confused about the teaching. They're not sure what he's getting at. And uh, so Jesus now begins to address their confusion. So that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 14 and verse 25. He says, These things I've spoken to you. These things I've spoken to you while being present with you. What things has he spoken to them? The things in chapters 13 and 14, about going away, about the giving of the Holy Spirit. He said, these are the things I've been talking about. Then he says in verse 26, but, notice by contrast, I've talked about certain things with you, but, by contrast, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father, what? will send. You see, that's in the future. You see that? So verse 25 are the things that he's been talking about to the disciples. But by contrast, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll be Christ's representative. If you go in the name of the President of the United States to a nation, you are his representative to that nation. So the Holy Spirit will be Christ's representative that the Father sends to the disciples sometime in the future. Now, we know it's going to take place on the day of Pentecost, but they don't understand that at this point. And he will represent Christ. Notice what his job is. He, number one, will teach you all things. And number two, he will bring to your remembrance all things. What things? All things that I said to you. Okay, so the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will have two jobs. He's going to teach, and he is going to remind. Okay? Notice in verse 26, the Holy Spirit is referred to as a he. He will teach. Up until this time, Jesus just talked about the Holy Spirit, called it it. But now he says the Holy Spirit has personality. Okay? Notice the word holy 
describes the Spirit. Spirit is the noun. He's going to send the Spirit. What kind of Spirit? Holy Spirit. That's an adjective. Describes the Spirit. Means the, the Spirit is never going to lead anybody astray. He's going to, he's a, he's, what he speaks is going to be right. It's going to be true. He's, he's the righteous Spirit of God. What is he going to teach and remind them of in verse 26? All things that I've said to you. Now notice this. The Holy Spirit does not give new revelation. There are people who get up there and say the Holy Spirit is revealing something. They get some sort of prophecy, some new revelation. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. What does the Holy Spirit do? Teach and remind them of what? Those things that Jesus spoke about. So it's not new revelation. It's actually things that Jesus already spoke about. And he's a helper. So he's going to help them understand and remember the things that Jesus taught. And he's going to clear up their confusion because they're confused. So he's going to help them clear up their confusion. Now, Jesus not only addresses their confusion, he also addresses their concern. Okay? Because remember, when Jesus said he was leaving, they were really concerned about that. They, that, that sort of threw them for a, a loop. You know, what, what's going to happen to us when you're gone? You know? uh, he's talk, talking about dying. You know, if, if he dies in the hands of the Romans, how about them? What's going to happen to them? And they're, they're very concerned. So Jesus has to address this concern. In verse 27, he says, Look, peace I leave with you. I'm not only going to leave you, but I'm going to leave you something. I'm going to leave you peace. This is Jesus' bequest to the apostles. We might call this Jesus' last will and testament. He's going to leave them peace. Peace means calm, calmness. He's going to relieve their concerns. He's going to send them a Holy Spirit, a helper, who will teach them and remind them what he said. That's going to take care of their confusion. What about their concerns? He's going to give them peace that will alleviate their troubled hearts and their concerns. Does that make sense? Look at the nature of the peace that he's going to leave them. First, the positive aspect. He says, my peace, in verse 27, I give to you. Notice it's a gift, and it's his to give. Uh, Jesus' peace represents the same kind of peace Jesus has. That's why Jesus can go to the cross and have total confidence that God's got everything in control. He doesn't have to beg for his life. He doesn't, you know, he's not troubled in the sense the way we think of it being troubled in the situation. So the positive sense, he's going to give them the same kind of peace that he has that enables him to face the cross. Look at the negative aspect of the peace in verse 27. Not the kind of peace that the world gives. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Now, Rome controlled the world and Rome preached peace. Whenever Roman soldiers went to the edge of the Roman Empire into a new territory, they came saying, we bring you good news of peace. That's the gospel that Rome preached. The gospel of peace. Hey, that's the gospel we talked about Christ preaching. Gospel of peace. But the peace that they preached was a different kind of peace. It was a peace that, hey, if you submit to the Roman government, we will protect you and you will have peace. If you don't submit, guess what? You're in trouble. It's called the mafia kind of peace. You know, go to your restaurant and they say, "Hey, you know, 
This is a bad neighborhood that you're in. You know, we can protect you. We'll give you peace. Now you have to give us you know, $50 a week. Well, I'm not going to do that. Well, guess what? You're going to have trouble, but it's not with the people in the neighborhood. It's with the mafia. So that's the kind of peace that Rome offered. And you had to fall in line or you were in trouble. Jesus is offering a different kind of peace, a calmness, an assurance that God will take care of everything. And the result of that is found at the end of verse 27. He says, let not your heart be troubled. See, if you have this kind of peace, you don't have to be in a troubled state. Let not your heart be troubled. Let it not be afraid. And that's exactly what condition that they're in. They're troubled. What's going to happen to us when he leaves? And they're afraid. And that's why they're going to run and hide, hide in an upper room after he dies. They're scared to death they'll come out in public because what's going to happen to them? So Jesus says, well, I'm going to give you some peace and you're not going to have to worry about all that. That will come with the Holy Spirit as well. Now look at verse 28. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. And he, that's a reference to him coming back through the power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now watch what Jesus said. I'm going to go away and coming back. If you loved me, you would rejoice. Are they rejoicing? No, they're troubled. If you loved me, you would rejoice. Now, they're not rejoicing. What does that prove? They really don't love him the way they should. See, they, they, they say they love him. But they really don't. That's why when Jesus, after he's resurrected, he comes and says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? You say you do. Well, go ahead and feed my sheep. Do something, will you? Don't just say you love me. So he said, if you, if you love me, you would rejoice. Do they rejoice? No. They're troubled and they're sad. Therefore, they don't love Jesus the way they should. Because if they loved him, what would they do? They would rejoice that he's going away. And on what basis would they rejoice if he's going away? Well, look what it says there. Verse 28, into verse 28. Because, here's why you would rejoice. Because I said I'm going to my father. Because my father is greater than I. You know, if you really loved him, you'd rejoice because he's going to go back to his father. And his father's greater than he is. Uh, how's God greater than Jesus? Well, well, first of all, he had more authority, didn't he? Jesus didn't do anything unless the Father told him to do it. So the Father had more authority than Jesus. And the Father had more power than Jesus. Jesus did nothing of his own power. He only did it through the power of the Father. And now he's going to go back to headquarters, and he's going to get a well done, a nice pat from his Father. And you, if you were one of the apostles and knew that, you rejoice that he's going to get to go back. But they're not rejoicing. They're saying, what's going to happen to us? See? And uh, so does that make sense to you so far? So this is where we are. Uh, then he goes on and says this, verse 29. And now I've told you before, it comes. I'm telling you this before it comes. Before all these things happen. I'm giving you a heads up. I'm giving you some week's notice on this. That when it does come to pass, you may what? You may believe. You'll realize that what I said was true, 
You won't be afraid anymore. You'll be calm. You'll see everything came to pass exactly like I said. And you, know, you won't be afraid anymore. That's going to be the result. And then look at what he says. <clears throat> Verse, what, 30? Look what we're to do until that point, or what they're to do until to that point. Look what he says. Here's what's next. Verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you. Okay? This is the last supper. This is my last teaching. Once we get out of this room and, and I, you know, I go to the garden of Gethsemane, I'm not going to be talking to you too much. Okay? So, you know, you need to get what I'm saying right now. And then look what he says. Here's why I'm not going to be talking much with you in verse 30. Because the ruler of this world is coming. That's Satan. Satan is going to be right there in the garden. He's going to be in a person. Judas Iscariot who kisses Jesus is going to betray Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, I'm going to have to deal with these other issues. So I'm not going to have much time to talk to you when all this comes to pass. He says... The rule of this world's coming in verse 30, and he has nothing in me. He's not going to get the upper hand over me. I'm going to have to deal with him, but don't worry, he's not going to get the upper hand. He's not going to, evil's not going to triumph. Satan has no claim against Jesus. Jesus has been totally obedient to the Father. It's not like when Satan came into the garden of paradise and Adam and Eve gave in to Satan. It's not going to happen that way. He said, but I am going to have to deal with it. Okay? Just realize I'm going to have to deal with it. So then he goes on and says, so I'm not going to be talking to you too much more. Verse 31. But that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me a commandment, so I do. That the world may know that I love the Father. So they can see that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me the commandment, so I do it. Here's how the world's going to know that Jesus loves the Father. He does the Father's commandments. Now what's God's commandment for Jesus the next day? Death. And he's going to do it. And because of Jesus' obedience, the world is going to realize that that's how much Jesus loves the Father. Here's how we know if we love Jesus. He's given us commandments, hasn't he? How would they know if we love Jesus? If we do them, if we obey. See? And what's the big commandment he's talking about, been talking about in these couple chapters? Love. See? And that's how the world knows that we love Jesus. And this is how the world knows that Jesus loves the Father, is he he obeys the Father. And then right at the end of verse 31, we have this phrase right here. It just says, rise, arise. Let us go from here. Now what in the world does that mean? Arise, let us go from here. From where? From the room? From the table? From the building? Some scholars say that at this point Jesus ends the Last Supper and he starts walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And the rest of chapter 15 and 16 and 17, he's actually teaching as he's walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane. I just can't see that happening. I think they probably get up from the table. They may move to another room, get to a more comfortable position. I'm not sure. Because when you look over at chapter 18 and verse 1, look what it says. This is totally after the teaching. Jesus teaches in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 
chapter 18, verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. That's when they leave the upper room where they have the Lord's Supper. And they went over to the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So I think that when we go back to chapter 14, in the last verse, when he says, Arise, let us go from here, he simply means let's just get up and maybe go into another room and uh, get a little more comfortable or whatever the situation is. We're not sure on that. Okay. So now, beginning in chapter 15, we come to the last of Jesus' I am statements. Remember he said, I am the way, you know, I am the light. This is the very last one of those statements. And here it is, I am the true vine. Now, when Jesus says, I'm the light, I'm the bread, I'm the door, he's speaking in metaphors. Metaphors are figures of speech, it's symbolic language. He doesn't mean that he is a door, literally. It means what? I'm like a door. Okay. And so, this is a metaphor, and uh, Jesus calls himself the vine. Now, why does he call himself a vine? Well, the vine was the official symbol for the nation of Israel. So if you lived back in Jesus' day, you could have gone to the temple of Herod, and you would have seen vines, golden vines, engraved into the portals of Herod's temple. When the Jews rebelled against Rome in 66 AD, it's called the Great Jewish War. They ended up losing that war. The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The last Jews died up on Masada. Remember that? When they decided to rebel against Rome and go to war with Rome, they minted their own coins. And on the coin was the vine, which was the symbol of Israel. And this coin represented Israel's currency. So Israel is the vine. And in the Old Testament... God repeatedly calls Israel a vine. However, passage after passage in the Old Testament, when he calls Israel a vine, he calls them a degenerative vine. He calls them a false vine. Because they don't live up to their potential. If you had a vineyard, and you had a vine, and you know there are branches, and then there are there's a, you know, there's a root, and then there are the, the little strings. If it didn't produce any, any fruit, didn't produce any grapes, it would be not worth anything. And that's what Israel was. It was a bad vine. It didn't produce what God wanted it to produce. God wanted Israel to be a, a nation of justice and righteousness and taking care of the poor and doing things honestly and having an honest balance and not taking bribes and not controlling people and not having slaves because they were slaves in Egypt. And God said, you're going to be a different kind of a nation. You're going to be a nation, you're going to be my vine that produces. And they failed to produce the fruit that God wanted. And he called them a false vine. So notice what Jesus calls himself. He says, I am the true vine. First of all, notice the definite article, the vine. He's exclusively the one and only vine that represents God's vine, Jesus. And notice the adjective there. What kind of vine is it? He's a true vine. 
in the I am sayings, among the seven I am sayings, two of them have adjectives. The first is, I am the good shepherd. Why does he say I am the good shepherd? Because Israel has had bad shepherds. And now he says, I am the true vine. And why does he say I am the true vine? Because Israel is a false vine. It is a bad vine. So, Jesus succeeds in doing what Israel fails to do. Israel was under an old covenant. Jesus is going to establish a new covenant. Israel is a nation with 12 tribes. Jesus 12 chooses 12 apostles. Israel was God's people. The church will be God's new people. So, he's developing a new people of God through his death and through his resurrection. So Jesus says, I am the vine. Now he describes his father in the rest of verse 1. He said, and my father is the vine dresser. Some translations say husbandman. Some say farmer. He's the, the gardener. He's the one who takes care of the vine. And uh, so Jesus says, I am the vine the Father is the vine dresser. He takes care of the vine. We're the branches that he takes care of, by the way. And we'll see that as we go through this passage. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, that's the Father, takes away. Now there are two categories here that you're going to see. Those that do not bear fruit and those who do bear fruit. So look what it says in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, he casts away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So what we have is two categories. We have branches that produce fruit and those that don't produce fruit. Those that don't produce fruit, they are lopped off. You just cut that branch off. It's dead wood. Branches that do produce fruit are branches that are alive. So you have dead wood that produce nothing, lopped right off. Now you have branches that are alive. Sap is running through those branches. And what he does there is he prunes those live branches. And if you've been out in the garden or done any work like that, know, you know this, this concept. If you see on your tree a dead branch, what do you do? You get your wife to cut it off if you're a man, right? <laughs> you cut it off. Okay. But also you prune, you cut back branches that are alive. Okay. Now notice what he says. What's the exception here? Every branch that does not produce fruit, he what? Takes away. How many branches? Every branch. There's no exceptions there. Every branch. Now, look. This is a metaphor. He's not talking about branches. Who's he ta what's he talking about? He's talking about people. Don't forget. Don't, don't think that he's talking about, you know, a vineyard. He's talking about people. They're God's vineyard. You have people that say, I'm a member of God's family, and guess what? They're producing absolutely no fruit in their life. Now, when you look at the fruit, there are all kinds of fruit, but the greatest of these is love. Now, when you're producing no fruit, I mean, we're talking about no fruit. What does he do? Cuts that person off. Then those branches that produce fruit, he prunes. Why does he prune it? Verse 2. That it may do what? 
bear more fruit. Now this year we had we've had peach trees in our yard. So what? Last year we just let the peach trees go, and it produced peaches about that big. So Lynn said we need to prune cut back some of the stuff. And I said okay. I got a ladder, you know, and the whole world. Cut, cut. So this is ridiculous, you know. I grew up in the city, you know. You just go to the store and buy your peaches. are always pretty big, you know. Pick out what you want. I said no, this is what we have. To. So we did it, and guess what? This year, much more fruit, big fruit. That, and that's just what happens here. Now, think about this. Jesus has 12 apostles. One of them produces nothing. Judas. What happens to him? Now, John's audience. John's writing in 95 AD to a church or a group of people. Think of what... When they're hearing this, what are they thinking? We're not producing. God might cut us off. And that's what we should be thinking as well. You know, 2,000 years later. So, God is the one who either prunes or lops off the branches. Okay? And the purpose is more fruit when he prunes. Okay? And there's a difference between lopping off and, and pruning, as you know. Okay, now look at verse 3. You, he's talking to the eleven, are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Now he's talking to the eleven apostles, and this harkens back to the language when Jesus was washing their feet. Remember that? Peter said, you don't have to wash me. Don't do my feet. And Jesus said, well, if I don't wash you, you're not one of them. And so what does Peter say? Well, do my whole body then. And Jesus says, well, you're already clean. I don't have to do your whole body. I just have to do your feet. So, if you're alive, you've been cleansed. All God needs to do is just prune you here and there to make you more productive. And so that sort of harkens back to that foot washing thing. So, what we see is that the Son cleanses us from sin. He dies on the cross, forgives us of our sin. The Father, He prunes us, he chastens us, and the Holy Spirit produces the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So the whole Trinity is involved in this process. Now what? Okay, we'll look at verse 4. So in light of that, what are we supposed to do? Here's what he says. Abide in me. Persevere. This is our responsibility. Our job is to, to stay close to Jesus. Persevere. And I in you persist. Word abide is used 69 times in John's Gospel. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit, and this is the lesson. As a branch cannot bear fruit in itself. So I have a branch that I bring down from one of my trees, and I just lay it here, this branch. It can lay here for the next 10 years, and guess what? It won't do what? It won't produce fruit. Branch cannot produce fruit by itself. And a person who's not in Christ cannot produce fruit either. Not the fruit that satisfies. So he says, as a branch cannot produce fruit in itself, unless it abides, it's connected to the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. So what we have is he's saying, you have to be a live believer in Christ. You have to have this connection with Christ through faith. 
Not just a profession of faith. You have to be alive in Christ. You have to be born again. You know, the Holy Spirit has to be running through your veins in a sense. Just like sap runs through the branches. Because if that's not the case, all you are is dead wood. And you'll be lopped off. And so that's what he's trying to say here. So make sure constantly, be on guard, take a look at yourself. Is there fruit? Am I abiding in Christ in a sense? Do I have faith in Christ? Verse 5, he says, I am the vine. There it is. He repeats it. You are the branches. Finally, he says it directly, so you'll have no doubt that you are the branches back in verse 2. He who abides in me and I in him bears what? Much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So here's the guarantee. If you are alive in Christ, you will bear what? Much fruit. Much fruit. Why? Because God's pruning you. <laughs> Always pruning you. So that you can produce much fruit. Now look at the result. If anyone does not abide in me, he is what? Cast out as a branch. Withered. It withers. That means it just dies. Cast out and is withered. And they gather them, those dead branches, and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Fire in the New Testament always is symbolic of judgment. So this, these are lost people, unbelievers, dead wood, not born again, who are cast into the fire. Judged. Has no value whatsoever. Lopped off, basically. And judged. Then he goes on to say, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Now he tells us something else. Those who are born again uh, can ask what they will, what they desire, and it will be done for them. So here we see that abiding in Christ, which is the evidence of that is obeying him, loving one another, that's the evidence of it, a person who loves another and abides in Christ and has living faith in Christ can ask what he desires, and your desire, of course, will be Christ's desire. You can't say, Lord, kill that person. That's not what the Lord would So you can ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. God will answer that request. That's why we pray for sick people. That's why we pray. Otherwise, uh, you know, we're wasting our breath. We are doing it because we have a guarantee here that God answers our prayers. And when our desires are off, and sometimes they are, we don't understand God's will, He answers them according to His perfect will. So here is uh, you know, a promise that we have. That uh, if we persevere, we obey, we believe, we love, that's the basis for answered prayer. And so now we have this summary. By this, my Father is glorified. What is it that glorifies the Father? That you bear much fruit. If you want to honor God, bear much fruit. That brings praise and glory to God. If you say you're a Christian and you bear no fruit and there's no love in your life, and you don't obey Christ, that doesn't bring honor to God, that brings dishonor to God. And that person who claims to be a Christian, but is not bearing fruit, is a hypocrite. And that's when the world looks at the church, for the most part, they say they're a bunch of hypocrites. 
And that's why Christ isn't honored. It's just been a huge study about how Christianity is on the decline in America. Why is it on the decline in America? There's only one reason it's on decline. It's not the world's fault. It's not the Muslim's fault. It's not the media's fault. It's not secular humanism's fault. The reason we're on decline is because when people look at us, they don't see Christ. And God is not honored. If they saw us living the way we should, they would realize, hey, there's a God in heaven who answers prayer. And they would want to get in on it. But unfortunately, the church oftentimes is more hypocritical than Christ honoring. By this is my Father glorified, verse 8, that you bear much fruit. So, you will be my disciples. That's the evidence of being a disciple, is that we bear fruit. So if we don't bear fruit, what does that show? We're not a disciple. So, I believe that this passage here is a, is a wake-up call for us. Uh, at two levels. First of all, for those who are confused, and look, we have people in this class that are confused, afraid, troubled, uh, you need to wake up to the fact that he's sending you a helper, the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be afraid of anything. You have a Father who will answer your prayers. Take this word of encouragement and be not troubled. He says, my peace I leave with you. And then the second wake-up call is for those who profess Christ, but produce no fruit. The wake-up call is, hey, you should be concerned. Because if there's no evidence of fruit in your life, there's no evidence that you're a disciple. You know, it's impossible to bear fruit without being connected to the vine. And it's impossible not to bear fruit when you are connected to the vine. If you're connected to the vine, you will produce fruit. There's no fruit where there's no faith. And there's no faith where there's no fruit. No matter what anybody says. These are the hard teachings of Jesus. And they we should be sobered by them. And we should examine our own lives and say, is the fruit of love in our life? Does our life honor the Father and show to the world that Jesus Christ is Lord? That's where we'll pick up next week at verse 9. Father, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> we thank you for a, an encouraging word. Uh, you've addressed our confusion that we don't have to be troubled. You've given us peace. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You, you've addressed our concerns and we don't have to worry about anything because you've got everything under control so help us Lord to take this word to heart, help us to examine our own lives help us to say oh Lord prune me produce more fruit in my life may my life be a testimony that Jesus is Lord and God the Father is a good God in Christ's name Thank you.